Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee Dee. I'm Maz Mary. And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. morning. Good morning. Happy Thursday. Happy guest Thursday. I'm always glad to get to Thursdays, A, because it's almost the end of the week, and B, because it almost always means we have a guest on, and we have a fabulous guest this week that we're really excited about. If you watched Tuesday's episode, you know that we are talking to the author of these three beautiful books, The Ember Ever There, Unpickled, Prepare to be Alcohol-Free, and her first book, Unpickled, Holiday Survival Guide, Jean McCarthy from the Bubble Hour podcast and Unpickled. So do you have anything to say before we bring Jean on? No, I do not. No. Let's bring her on. All right. Where does my mouse keep going? It's hard to add someone when you can't get the mouse. Good morning, Jean. Good morning. Hello. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this all week. In fact, let me tell you something funny. On Tuesday morning, I was outside drinking my coffee in my pajamas Mm -hmm. and my phone binged that uh, Dana Duvall's going live. And I thought, oh, what's she up to? And I opened it and you were talking about me and I thought, oh no, did I get the dates mixed up? (laughs) (laughs) We decided to make it a full week of Jean McCarthy unpickled because we think that the work is so interesting and compelling and smart. It's so smart, Jean. Oh, thank you. I I can say in all honesty, we've not had a conversation with anyone gotten off and thought, well, that was the stupidest person we've ever talked to. (laughs) But but your stuff is just, I I love how practical your writing is. It it doesn't feel um, from the non-drinker's perspective. It does not feel like something that somebody couldn't try in an effort to manage what feels unmanageable often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it, it's, it's, I'm trying to come at this from the, I feel like the conversation has changed over the last decade. And I was lucky enough to be in a position of doing a lot of listening. And so what I've tried to do is amalgamate some of the really pragmatic wisdom that I've heard along the way. So I'm not an expert, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a doctor, but I am a good communicator. So I've taken all the brilliant things that I've heard along the way and tried to put them into some concise, really dense little nuggets of useful resources. Well, as we know, there are very few brand new ideas in the world. So smart people are looking around at the insights that they're receiving and figuring out how to interpret them in a way that makes sense to their audience as well. So yeah. done that you've done that fabulously. Um, Maz, you want to start with anything in particular? Uh, well, on on Tuesday, um, I talked about your second book first, and I actually your brand new book, your brand new book to p- prepare to be alcohol free. Um, as I said on Tuesday, I love this book. Forty nine chapters, one to three pages. You've got some no-nonsense, wonderful pieces of information. And then you have people in recovery giving you like little notes at the end of each one. So it, it really, to me, it was, you know, AA isn't for everyone. If you're struggling with the big book, um, it's called the big book because it's 
thick. It's thick. Um, this is fantastic. There's no preamble. It's no messy words, which is tough coming for me because I kind of, when I write anything, it's like a Dickens novel. It's true. No one's <laughs> going to ask Kaz to write a meditation on sobriety. <laughs> but you, you just get to the point. It's it's actually, it was, it was a refreshing um, perspective on living a sober life. And it's, I think it's incredibly helpful. Oh. You've split it down into bits that someone who's really struggling can actually wrap their head around it. I mean, right from the start, your first chapter, the take home message from that is basically if, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Yeah. No, right first time that's right there. And I think, well, that's a great place to start. So I think it's very good. And the way you laid it out is awesome. You, you just explain everything. You know, you went into the next part of, okay, what's a trigger? You've heard the word. What does it mean? Yeah. This is a trigger. I think, um, and then we will let you talk, Jean. You're yeah, our sorry, guest. Jean. We're doing a very <laughs> poor job. I'm sorry. But um, one thing that I thought about it as I was reading it is what a great book for a spouse, a child, a parent, somebody who's got someone in their life who's also struggling because it was really hard for me to have any real insight into what was happening to Maz because I had no experience with it. And this book might have helped me think, oh, maybe this is why this is hard. How might I try to assist in that versus just screaming at him for doing it? I love that. Okay. Let's stop. Yes. Let's ask the question and be quiet. You're 11 years sober. Congrat or 11 years since you chose to stop drinking. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Talk to us, Jean, about what got you to that point. Um, well, I I kind of had the opposite experience of what your family went through because I was hiding it and doing really well. And so my coping mechanism was working for me. And this is this is how people get addicted because it works for a while. And then uh, little by little, it starts to fail you or it starts to, um, well, you get addicted. Your addiction grows. You, you move deeper into the spectrum of addiction. And all of a sudden your coping mechanism is its own problem. So I was... Um, uh, I've got three kids. They're all grown now, but um, married, family business, working mom, like just the busy, busy, busy of pretty much, you know, every woman <laughs> at that stage of life. And um, but secretly drinking a lot to get through uh, coming home from work and immediately pouring a drink and then trying to manage it all night, right? Trying to get the kids to sports, get the meals done, get the laundry done for the next day, all the busyness. And also this management problem of getting enough alcohol so that I could fall asleep at night so that I could get up and do it all over again the next day. So it was really kind of a sleep aid, an anxiety aid, uh, a help that then became a problem. Mm. And I was trying to quit every day for years, every day waking up and saying, today's going to be the day. And then by noon saying, oh, today can't be the day. Today can't be the day. Something good happened. Something bad happened. I have a company coming over. There was always a reason uh, by midday that I decided it wasn't possible that day. And then uh, comes the decision, you know, to, to, 
pick up alcohol on the way home or thinking about how much is at home and then planning, you know, how to drink that night. So, uh, I was thinking I was going to have to hit a rock bottom and I was terrified, you guys. I'm thinking, what is going to happen to me that's going to make me stop? Something bad has to happen for me to stop because I'm not an alcoholic and alcoholics hit rock bottom and then they quit drinking. I heard that. I knew that. Um, but I was so scared of what rock bottom was going to be. And then one day I just had this epiphany that that was the dumbest thing ever, that <laughs> I could just quit. I didn't have to wait for things to get worse. But also, I think I had this really strong, um, terrifying awareness that every time I was trying to stop, but it was getting worse. And that this was, and if I kept going, this would kill me. This is what happens, you know. And before it takes your life, it ruins your life. And I didn't want either of those things, not for myself, not for my family. And um, I listened to your story, your series uh, last week with my heart in my throat thinking, oh, my God, like that was, you know, so hard to hear mm. because it's where we all know we're headed and yet um, just don't know how to stop it. So on that day, I kind of harnessed that fear, that awareness, and I did the one thing that I had never done before. And that was I told one friend the truth. I told someone how much I drank and that I was scared and I needed to stop. And there's a big difference between telling your friends while you're drinking, <laughs> I drink too much, I think I'm an alcoholic. And, and you kind of know that they're going to say, you're fine. No, you're fine. This is all fine. But in the light of day, this one-on-one -on -one conversation, for me, I needed external validation. I needed someone else to say, you're right. That's too much. You do need to stop. And that was that was the day I quit. And then and the subsequent days, I went through physical withdrawal, which was nothing as dramatic as your experience. But it was enough to make me realize, oh, this is real. Like this is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did need to quit. And um, luckily that it's stuck. <laughs> wow. I just marvel at anyone who can absolutely in the in the plain day of being caught up in it can say i'm going to stop because yeah. i know how hard it is to i i joke all the time but it's kind of not a joke but i don't mean to equate it with a, an addiction to alcohol for instance but i joke all the time that i can't have special k bars in the house because i I would eat a pan of special K bars and then I would get sick and then I would eat another pan. And so if I can't control something as simple as some stupid sugar and some cold cereal and chocolate, I can't imagine what it takes to really step away from something that I now understand absolutely becomes the controller of your day, your week, your month, your year, your life. Yeah. I, I just, I marvel at that story, Gene, because I know how hard it was for Maz mm. and Maz, and I'm not minimizing your journey, but Maz had a lot of medical assistance along the way yeah. to help through the worst parts of that. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, 
I think what's hard for people to understand that are normies or normal drinkers or, you know, not, not experiencing addiction is that for, for most people, drinking is fun and being a little tipsy is fun and they associate, associate it with, with good times. But once you're drinking to support an addiction, you're drinking to feel normal. Mm. It's not fun. I, I, I would have loved to have felt tipsy. I couldn't feel tipsy. I was either craving alcohol or drinking it, but also in a way that never got me where I wanted to go. But I didn't feel right if I wasn't having it. So you're either um, feeding your addiction or craving it. There's there's no fun involved for the most part. And <clears throat> I think that's what makes it so hard for people to understand. Well, why can't you just quit? Like, yeah. you know, and or oh nice for you you're you're addicted you're just having fun all the time it's like it is not fun at all it's like a job (laughs) a very unpleasant job and a management problem and um i have to say about the book you know it means a lot to me that you read it and that it resonated with you because i really wrote this book for people in an earlier stage of change so the, the trans theoretical model of stages of change, there's pre-contemplation where you don't really, you're not really thinking about the problem. Contemplation where you're starting to think, ah, I think I have a problem. I'm not sure what to do about it. And then investigation or preparation where you start making a plan and learning about it. And then there's action and maintenance. So there's tons of books about action and maintenance for sobriety, how to get sober and how to stay sober. But I really thought, for me, I spent so long in that pre-contemplation pre-contempl- stage of thinking about it and gearing up for it that I thought maybe we could harness that time. And this book really aims for people that are thinking about it, things you could do that will help you when you get to the action stage. In your case, you weren't really in that pre-contemplation stage. You yeah. know, your health crisis slammed you into action and you kind of had to go through the um, acceptance and the contemplation and the how am I going to do this after the fact, but you were thrust into action by crisis. So um, this book might have helped you after you got sober. Um, And that's great to hear. That means so much to me to hear you say that because I was a little bit worried that you were going to read it and think like, well, this wouldn't have helped me at all. Um, Uh (laughs) <laughs> because that's that stage wasn't there for you because yeah. your experience was different so the that reason, means a lot one of the reasons i like it is being you know being sober and looking back this would have been of a great help and i i've told dana this before i think i may have mentioned it on our show in the five years four months three weeks and two days i've been sober and going to aa two people have come into an aa meeting and asked for help in all that time and the way you wrote this book is a fantastic guideline so this is what you should be thinking this is what you're gonna this is what you should expect here's a nice little um set of circumstances for you to follow as a checklist to tick off to help get you back on the right course you even explain what a measure is <laughs> I think it was chapter six. You actually just went, you went into the trouble of saying, all right, you drink. This is exactly how much alcohol 
is in the measure of what's in what you drink. And I've never seen that written down in such a clear cut way before. You know, because we have no idea, right? Like I would say, oh, I just have one or two glasses of wine a night. Well, they were the size of my head. So, (laughs) so uh, I think what I try to do is cut through some of the denial and I do it chapter by chapter. So it's bringing us back to self and bringing us back to some honesty with ourselves. because when we are drinking addictively, we little by little lose that. And so first of all, it's like, what's your pattern? When do you drink? How do you drink? How much do you drink? And then in another chapter, we go back and revise that based on, okay, let's actually have you fill a glass of wine or scotch glass, how much you would normally have. And now we're going to pour it back into a measuring cup and see how much you're actually drinking. Now that you know your one glass of wine is actually three, let's go back to your chart and revise that. Then that way, when you do go to your doctor and say, I'm thinking about going alcohol free. I want to enlist you as an advocate. Here's my pattern. How can I do this safely? And I feel like that's a a much less intimidating conversation than saying, I think I'm an alcoholic. Do I need treatment? I never use the word alcoholic in this book. I don't even use the word sober because, uh, yeah, it's up to someone to decide how to adopt that language for themselves, in my opinion. Or if you're in a program that uses it, you know, in a way that's helpful, then you might decide that that's for you. But for some people, that is the thing that keeps them drinking is that they don't want that language. So let's just reframe it really practically and take out all of these obstacles that you've created for yourself and just make it as easy as possible. Uh, yeah, it, it, I I read it and wondered how you would have received it, Maz, because I have said many times, I don't think anything would have gotten through to Maz in terms of, hey, let's, let's take an honest assessment of this. I could never get you yeah. to be honest, but Maz is one example. You're an example. There's clearly not one way to find yourself in that moment where you think, boy, maybe this is out of control. What do, what do I need or want to do? And so that to me is what's so lovely about this is you're not saying here's the prescribed path. Maz and I aren't saying here's the prescribed. There is no prescribed path. Yeah. Yeah. Just like there's yeah. no one path for cancer treatment or for how you're going to manage your diabetes or anything else. You have to figure out what's going to work for you. So let's look at this um, point from Bonnie. While this addresses alcohol, you present a template for any person for any struggle. Yes. One, identify something that's not right. Two, tell someone and get a support support post. And three, just start and start again if you need to. Boy, is that true in this um, book. I think you must be such an encourager for many people. You're doing just what you were programmed to do. Bless you. Your presentation is so fantastic. Going to read your books and I don't, all I drink is too much coffee. It's my mother. <laughs> I can promise you she does drink too much coffee. Sorry, one Aww. more time. But Unpickled is the greatest title ever. It's so non-judgmental <laughs> and mildly fun. I would <laughs> Let me put your uh, website back up. Uh, can I ask about this or do you want me to wait? Can you? I can you wait. Want, so I Go just want, I want to praise you on um, when you laid out the difference between empower, being powerless and uh, being empowered. Yes. I actually thought that was brilliant. Uh, thank you. I can't take credit for it. I heard it somewhere else. But <laughs> one, of the, one of the first steps in AA, you have to admit you're powerless over alcohol, which is, as you rightly put it, you've surrendered. 
But if you're empowered, you know, you have the ability to choose to live an alcohol-free life. I, I think that's incredibly important for a lot more people than saying, I surrender. Yeah. I really uh, I, it kept me out of AA, to be honest. I, I, I kept looking at the steps. I kept Googling the steps when I was drinking. And I would see that first step. And I thought, well, I can't go to AA because I'm not powerless. I know I choose every day to drink. I, I think I have a tiny bit of power to harness. Now, I've since learned that, you know, that was really probably my addiction, um, uh, keeping me drinking in a way, like ma making me find an excuse to not go get help because I absolutely would have been welcomed at a meeting and would have found support. Um, so it was my misunderstanding of it. But I do hear often that, especially for women, uh, the idea of powerlessness is kind of a turnoff. It is. And, and that, that's yeah. fake. that book was written in the 1930s by two white men. Yeah. <laughs> who were Christian. Yeah. So, yeah. A very narrow group who they were. I mean, I it, worked, it has worked for me, but I, I fully understand where you're coming from. And I, I mean, it, there's even a chapter in that book for advice for the wife. That's what the chapter's called. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes I, I do um, drop into 12-step meetings for fellowship and support and friendship. And I, I really have to um, be gentle with, with my listening because sometimes the, the language really does rub me the wrong oh, way. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, the I'm, message is good. Absolutely. And they're, you know, they're, they're so good about saying, just take what you can use, leave the rest. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I really love that phrase. I have to be gentle. Because um, I, so AA was the only program that I knew because Maz went through it and it worked for him. And so I was uh, an advocate for AA. I mean, I didn't walk around telling people, boy, it seems like you have a drinking problem. Off to AA you go. <laughs> but if somebody asked me, you know, what what's working at your house? I would say, well, AA worked well for Maz because I didn't know there was anything else. Um, and now that I am learning about all these other paths, I am having a hard time being very gentle about AA because I actually think it's not, it's not a very effective path for probably most people because it really, it really, for all of their talk about, oh, this is a judgment-free place, it starts from such a place of judgment. <laughs> I'm screwed up. I have no power. I, I'll always struggle with this. I'll never probably step away from it. It will always be something that I have to wrestle to the ground. That feels exhausting. Yeah. And, yeah. and not joyful and not celebratory at all. And I've never been to an AA meeting. So I'm coming at this from a place of observation only. Well, you've been to a couple of Alan on meetings. Yeah. So you know the kind of. But, but I just, I'm. I know it works for some people and I know it really doesn't work for other people. So I'm going to adopt that phrase, gentleness around the messaging, um, Jean, because I think it, it's not for me to judge. I don't need it. So who cares what I think about it? But I do I do find it interesting now that I'm learning all these other things. I know Dana's dying up to say something, but I just want to say for <clears throat> all of our listeners that this book goes on. It goes on. <laughs> 47 chapters no, on. I mean, it goes on to explain, right, here's your next step. All right, so you've admitted your alcohol, you need some trouble, you've got some problems of alcohol, here's how you deal with it. And then the advice you give all the way through it is what's the next step, what to do, how to do everything. 
have to show everyone Dr. Mary's notes. He's such an academic. Well, that's why he took copious notes. When I said to him, I want you to lead these conversations around Gene's books this week, man, he was on it. It's good to have an academic in the house when you give them assignments like this. I mean, for example, and <laughs> you get to the middle of the book, you know, you're, you're giving advice that's, that stems from your first book about how to survive Christmas or the holidays, which when I read that, I thought, oh my God, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But, you know, plan for rough days. You, here's a great piece of advice. You know, have frozen meals or home-cooked meals or leftovers ready for when you've had a bad day. That way you're eating something proper when you get home. All you got to do is microwave it and you don't go through the ritual of, I used to drink wine when I cooked. I mean, that's just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, a, and simple, right? Like, I yeah. think so many of us just think, oh, I'm just not going to drink. I'm going to live my life the exact same way, but I'm not going to drink. Because you think you're just changing one thing, but you're yeah. actually changing everything, including yeah. meal times and yeah. kitchen, everything you do in your kitchen. And sporting events and gathering with friends. And uh, yeah, you're right. Just about everything but breakfast. Oh, and for some people, sorry. even breakfast. And one more thing. <laughs> Where you linked, and not many people talk about this, the fact that if you've got a low blood sugar because you're hungry, it kicks off the same weird pathway in your brain to crave having an alcoholic drink. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I learned this from a guest on the bubble hour podcast, which the podcast that I host um, and uh, nutrition for recovery was yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the guest that I had on. And she shared that um, a hypoglycemic response, which is that, you know, the Snickers commercials, like hangry, yeah. you're hangry. Yeah. And, uh, and that feels a lot like an alcohol craving. And so sometimes yeah. when people think, oh, my gosh, I need a drink, what they actually need is a handful of almonds yeah. because they're just they're just their blood sugar's crashing and yeah. it feels a lot like a craving. So interesting. Sorry, I'm very excited. I keep going. OK, here's a chapter <laughs> that I loved for humans, not for people who are just for people who are uh, trying to drink less or trying to drink not at all. Use what you have. Um, now that you're aware of the need to develop other means of, of self-comfort, keep your eyes open for possibilities. You probably have things around your house that you've forgotten to notice. Take 30 minutes and search through a cupboard or closet for items to catch your interest. You've been numbing out with alcohol. Could you numb out with a crossword instead? Spend a pleasant hour learning to play the ukulele. Reread your old high school essays. Look through photo albums. And then you go on and talk about overlooked comforts, which can be a replacement for drinking and which probably are already in your home. Yeah. And, and what I thought about that again was, so you're trying to lose weight because who do we know in our lives who isn't trying to lose weight? Okay. You know exactly where you keep the chips, where you keep the chocolate bars, where you keep the ice cream. Well, get out of that space. Don't spend an hour in the kitchen if that's where all the treats are. Figure out what can I do instead. Paint your fingernails, listen to a podcast, do a crossword, work on a puzzle, whatever it is. As you said earlier, disrupt that routine, get out of that regular because you're not just stepping away from alcohol or whatever it is you're stepping away from. You're really changing everything. But that's so practical. It's <laughs> like, well, I guess I'm going to have to move houses or I guess we're going to have to go to the movies or uh, it doesn't have to involve spending money. You've got this stuff in your house already. 
figure out how to take comfort from something else. Sit in your garden for an hour, unless that's where you drank, then let your garden go completely to weed for a while <laughs> till you can get comfortable there and do something else. It's so smart. I even say, um, you know, as you're, if you're preparing to quit, set up little stations around your house, like move your furniture. If you always sit on the sofa, on this end of the sofa and watch The Bachelor and drink wine, then let's let's move the furniture around and let's make that chair over there with the blanket and the book and the bottle of water and the lamp. That's your non-drinking chair. You can never drink in that chair. And okay. when you quit drinking, you're gonna sit there in the evening because that's your non-drinking chair. If you sit in where you always sat and do what you always did, but just try to do it without alcohol, you're gonna miss it, right? Yeah. It's like it's like an old boyfriend. You know, if you go to all those old places, you're gonna miss that guy, even no matter how much of a jerk he was. <laughs> but you've gotta create some new experiences for yourself because we train ourselves that alcohol is the only comfort. It's the only thing we come to want. Mm -hmm. And we have to wake up all the other ways that we find joy or just soothe ourselves or yeah. pass time for God's sake, just pass some time. Because if you can pass time, the craving will pass. It doesn't usually last that long. So um, I used to, in my career, I'm semi-retired now, but my career was in home building and show home design. And so my whole job was about creating these beautiful little vignettes of inviting spaces for people to walk through homes and have these discoveries. And so when I applied that to my own life and just made all these little welcoming spaces for myself in my own house with what I already had, because yeah. I used to like things before I only got interested in alcohol. I just kind of had to dig them out, resurface them again. Well, you know, it's not unlike, um, you know, if you if you're at your parents' house and you your mom or dad pulls out the box of stuff that they've kept of yours that didn't move with you anywhere, <laughs> looking through. If you're my age, you're looking through your albums and your cassette tapes, or you're looking through your old old photo albums. Those might be things that at one point in your life were enormously meaningful to you and you've moved on to different things, but they're really fun to revisit. Yeah. And, and you can find that you um, you go back to a different time and you, you almost become that person again yeah. because the memories are so strong. And if you're lucky, like I, if I think about my Duran Duran albums, um, I wasn't drinking while I was listening to Duran Duran. So when I put those albums on, the, my first thought isn't, oh, man, I was so drunk when I used to dance to this. I wasn't. So that alcohol isn't even a piece of that. Um, and that's a really, I think, easy way to go back. If you can find the things that were important to you before alcohol was a piece of your life, if you're lucky and didn't start drinking as a young person, that's yeah. a, just, I think, be rekindled with with finding joy that has nothing to do with having a bottle or a glass of something in your hand. Well, that's brilliant because near the end of the book, um, uh, you uh, one of the chapters was about looking for alcohol-free role models. You mm. know? Uh, so that's actually what I did. This is great advice, but I actually went looking for famous people oh, yeah. who are sober. You know, you find that, you know, you find the obvious ones like, you know, um, movie stars who are now sober and some, you know, there were some examples we watched when I was in rehab, you know, comedians who actually now talk about 
they make jokes out of, out of AA, but in a way what you think, yeah, this is actually, people are laughing at that, but that's really good advice. Yeah. Someone said, you know, they call it AA and the second A is anonymous, but if you walk by any Lutheran church and there's a dozen men chain smoking outside of it, you know something's happening in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> but I found out one of my favorite recording artists, a musician, has you know is an al a recovering alcoholic and that made listening to my some of my favorite albums even more important to me yeah oh that's cool i think it's so important and i because we we get a little self-centered you know um a little a lot self-centered when we're in that spiral of addiction or just drinking more than we want to if i want to soften the language um it slowly becomes all about us 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 and one of the phrases that I've heard in AA that I like is that you become an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. You're like, you know, it's all about me, but I'm a piece of dirt, you know? Yeah. And uh, so to, to, and you kind of think I'm going to be the only person that gets sober. This is my life is over. I'm not going to have any fun. I'm not like anyone else because we slowly also surround ourselves with people who drink like us because who wants to hang out with people that don't drink? Um, it makes it, it makes you stand out more. Uh, as a when you're drinking a lot, you try to mask your behavior by surrounding yourself with alcohol fueled uh, situations as much as you can. Um, so when you quit, yeah, to start to realize like, no, there's there's this whole world of people that don't drink and really are living so wholeheartedly because we have time and space and um, I guess resources, I mean, capacity, that's the word I like, capacity to fully live our lives mm. when we're not numb all the time, right? Mm. And I did this one little graphic that went viral because I, I guess viral by my terms anyway, you know, got shared a few, a lot on Facebook, but that's I wrote to recover is to create a life that you no longer want to escape from. Mm. And I think that's, that's at the heart of it. And that's a hard one maybe for families to hear because you think, wait a minute, you are drinking to get away from me. But no, it's to get away from ourselves in the, maybe we're in a life we don't feel worthy of. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we feel like, I know for me, I felt like, you know, I've been with my husband since I was 17 years old, but one of these days he's going to figure out that I don't deserve him. And one of these days, my three children are going to figure out that I don't deserve them. They're all going to leave me. And to realize that I have to build a, a, my relationship with myself so that I even feel worthy in this life. And I don't feel like I have to keep numbing to brace myself for this supposed rejection that's going to come. There's so many ways that we rebuild that. I also want to mention what you were saying about Duran Duran. Uh, that's my era, too. Um, and sometimes people bristle at the word recovery because they think, well, I'm not sick. I don't need to recover. But I look at it as I'm recovering me. I'm recovering that who I was before I started putting on all this armor, before I started thinking I'm not enough and I need to be different, you know? So I'm recovering 12-year-old me. I'm recovering 15-year-old me. And sometimes, you know, we just have to go back and reconnect with who we were before we started trying to be what we're not. Yeah. And that to me is what I've really recovered is I feel really um, kind of integrated and whole. And I 
still have to work on it. Like I, I have to work to stay here, but I can actually get to this place that I didn't think was possible before, which is where I feel good about myself. And I know that I am where I'm meant to be. And I'm like worthy of this life that I have. And it makes me emotional just saying that, uh, to, to partly because it makes me sad that I ever felt yeah. other than that, but also because I'm so grateful to be here, to be in this, in this place inside of myself, especially as I'm getting older, as I'm aging, as life's moving on. And, um, I've got three grandkids now yeah. so and three daughter-in-law. So I sort of feel like I'm like this matriarch of the family uh -huh. I and I want to be a strong that, leader. Right? Right? Yep. And, yep. and I want to be someone that they can rely on and, and call in crisis and not think like, oh, it's past eight o'clock. Your mom's going to be drunk. We can't phone her, you know, or we can't ask her to babysit. Um, and, uh, you know, even someone who's maybe advice you might seek. Um, gosh, that just means the world to me to be that kind of a woman as I age. And it makes things like how we look or how much I weigh or all of the things that become harder and harder as we get older. Uh, if we really identify as the way society tells us our value is in looks or achievement or these other things, the more we're strong within ourselves, the more we feel um, authentic and valued as as we age and as life changes. That, that's something that is an unexpected win. I mean, I didn't get sober for that, okay. but I'm. It, it's been. There's all these bonus gifts, right? <laughs> I, um, yeah, and you know, as I'm listening to you, Jean, I'm I'm just thinking, you and I have the same or had the same internal monologue. I didn't turn to alcohol. I don't know what I turned to other things, I suppose. But but that's what makes your books, I think, so beautiful. And what makes your podcast so compelling is I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with feelings of, am I worthy? Will someone wake up and realize, oh, you're not who I thought you were? Will they come to their senses and leave you? Yeah. Uh, you know, all of these things that I think are part and parcel I can only say to being a woman, I can't speak for men, but, but everything you're saying could be coming out of my mouth. Uh, and so I think there's something really powerful about just the understanding that your struggle with alcohol is perhaps just an additional piece to what seems to be almost a universal struggle of being alive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's why your work, I think, is so resonant. You have a whole section. It, so this middle book is um, poems on change, grief, growth, recovery, and rediscovery. And so many of the middle section is this whole idea of um, like recovering yourself, which is exactly what you just said. It's such a beautiful way to... Um, to be present in the world. I just want to read one of them because this has, in my opinion, this has nothing to do with alcohol and maybe everything to do with alcohol. I am her. So this is the woman I've waited a lifetime to see. This is how the face will soften. This is how the shape will round. 
This is how the gray will appear. This is how the arms will hold. This is how the words will ring. This is how the heart will shine. Finally, finally, I am her. I want to meet the woman who says, now that doesn't resonate with me. That's, I don't I don't feel anything when I hear I that. I've always been you. her. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> always been her. We're all striving for her. And that's what I think makes your work really just universal and beautiful. Oh, you guys, you're just filling me up. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna be floating all day with um, oh, so are we validation and and feeling so good. Do you know my family laughs at me for this, but um I I realize I I need validation. I I I really I'm a gold star girl, right? So I I um my phone, you know how you can name your phone like Jean's iPhone or Dana's iPhone. Okay, I named my phone Good Job Jean. So every time I put my headphones in, they say connected to Good Job Jean. And when I get in my car, up on the display screen says Good Job Jean. <laughs> Yeah, and every immediately. So uh, my family's joke is, whenever I do something that they can tell, I'm like trying to make be a people pleaser. They'll say, "Good job, Jean," because uh, they know that like <laughs> no one can zoom to quite like your family. Can they? So I'm feeling like this is a good job, Jean interview. That you're oh, you're really that's... you're really touching my heart and making me feel seen and heard. And appreciate it. <laughs> well, that's good. That was that was our hope. Um, I have I have a last question for you, and then we'll see if if Dr. Mary has anything else he needs to tell you is brilliant from your book. But um, you are, and I started this at the beginning, but you're an artist, a poet, a songwriter, a musician, a singer, all these things. Do you think that there is for you? A, a tie-up that has that has created sort of a mishmashed your your perhaps fall into drinking too much your work to get out your um, your use of art in your journey to being getting back to her. Uh, I mean, is, are those are those tied and interchangeable for you, or do you see them as two separate pieces of who you are? Uh, no, they're. I think it was an acceptance of my creativity. I think I was always kind of embarrassed of it. Yeah. Um, in a way, I think I felt like it made me kind of flighty. And uh, it was a side of myself that I tried to kind of bento box. So I, I was saying I, my career was in home building. And um, uh I was kind of a big deal in my own life, you know? So uh, I, <laughs> uh, and I, um, so we, we own this business, a home building company. I was president of the Canadian Home Builders Association, uh, was involved in uh, national level meetings to set policy with government, uh, very visible in my hometown, which is about the same size as Fargo. It's, um, okay. I'm in Lethbridge, about 100,000 people here. Okay. So um, really visible, but as a business person, always speaking as a business person and on behalf of the construction industry. And as a woman, um, that got me a little like being a female speaking in that kind of a role always got me like an extra three seconds of attention yep. that I could use to kind of prove myself. And the whole purpose of doing that was to promote 
our business, really. That's kind of how it works, right? That's why you do all these things. But then I had this creative side. I was writing music. I was performing music. I was um, just doing creative things and trying to promote that, but doing it kind of secretly. Like I, I would have just died if anyone from the business world showed up at one of my shows. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, I would have been really embarrassed for people in the arts community to, um, you know, I would go to a folk festival in another town and hope that they didn't realize that like I was just, you know, in a magazine uh, talking about industry kind of thing. I felt like those two sides couldn't be integrated at all. And that was part of my illness, really, was thinking that I had this external armor and then this internal shrunken ver version of myself that was like hiding and thinking, I don't want people to find out um, mm -hmm. that, that I'm not who I present. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so this has really been about integrating and learning to accept and celebrate and use my gifts and that um that I don't have to be ashamed of them it sounds so dumb when I say it like this but you know we play these games in our head and like I said I think in a way when you're when you're addicted to something part of that addiction leverages any self-doubt that you have to perpetuate the addiction right and so sometimes you have this inner dialogue that feels like it's you it feels like it's your real thoughts but it's actually just you know the part of you that wants alcohol trying to convince you to keep doing that mm -hmm. so um being free of that voice has really allowed me to be whole and that lets me write poetry and not be ashamed i don't perform music anymore um, but the poetry is kind of an extension of that. Mm -hmm. I paint. These are some things I've painted I've around in my office. And um, I, I feel like I'm able to take the things that I'm interested in and use them in a way that helps me and other people. And, um, and it just feels, yeah, it feels really good. And it goes back to that wholeheartedness that yeah. I was talking about earlier. And I appreciate you guys doing this too, because I feel like you're doing the same thing. You're taking your gifts of communication and your ability to manage technology and your willingness to show up, which by the way is huge. Um, most podcasts don't last more than a few dozen episodes because people yeah, get tired of just we're showing up. We're, yeah. we're in it. Well, the you're, a 350th, so stupid, you're a 350th episode. That's huge. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, um, thank you. You, you said something a minute ago. I just want to address. You said you feel, I, I can't remember if you said dumb or stupid <laughs> or for sort of, you know, trying to compartmentalize your business life, your art life. I mean, to me, so by day I, I'm an arts administrator and I'm an actor and an artist in my own right. And um, I totally get what you're saying. And some of it is just that the same way we've created stereotypes around what an addict is, we've created stereotypes around what an artist is. And how could you possibly be successful? You're an artist. Artists right. aren't successful. They're starving. They're addicted to stuff. They can't get real jobs, all those kinds of things. So it's not surprising to me at all that you sort of tried to squash that and then it's not at all surprising to me that 
like a weed, you can squash a weed all you want. You can put 47 layers of compost on the weed and the weed is still going to emerge through that compost because the weed can't be denied. And when yeah. you're an artist, because you're a, a living being, you can't deny it. You can, you can try to hide it, but it will always emerge. So you must have felt that great conflict of, you know, which, which am I and am I, who's going to find out when? And that, can, that must have only added to the both allure of alcohol and stress of it. Yeah, it did. And I think the relief uh, recovery, like I said, being more integrated and being more whole and realizing, you know, maybe, maybe uh, part of the reason I felt judged was because I was judgmental of others. <laughs> so when I started to heal myself and I started then to heal my relationships with other people because I was gentler in how I was approaching the world and changed my worldview a little bit. Yeah. And that was really good. And I, I think what I realized honestly, just recently in it, it was huge was that my sensitivity is a big part of the reason why I drank because I was trying to numb how sensitive I am. Mm -hmm. But also that sensitivity was what allowed me to realize something was wrong. <clears throat> and it's what allowed has allowed me to recover and thrive. Yep. So that's kind of the irony of it, isn't it? It's like the, the thing that we're trying to, the weed, as you say, that we're yep. trying to tamp down <clears throat> is also the thing that we can harness and pull us out of it. So I have to put in a plug for a book I'm reading right now because I feel like if you and I lived closer together, we might be really, really close friends. And this book has explained me to myself in ways that nothing ever has. It's called Bittersweet. Oh, okay. I'm by a woman, Susan Cain. Her first book was called Quiet, which I have not read. Um, <clears throat> but it's How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Oh, I need to read that. Uh-huh. So I, I didn't read quiet either because I'm not quiet. So no, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not either. Um, but it, I heard her on Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert a couple weeks ago and then got the book at the library. It is uh I, I think you will read it and then you'll send me a message and then we'll talk about it because it was okay. so it's really it's really amazing. And what you just said, I think it's your sensitivity that led into this and got you out of it to be bittersweet is to feel things deeply and to struggle with feeling things deeply, which makes you feel them even more deeply. It's right, very, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, just, I, we could go on and on. Did you have something? You want I to have a couple with? of, because um, to the South of you, um, we're gearing up for a, a big holiday coming up in a couple of weeks. Your first book, how to survive or the holiday survival guide. Now I know you wrote this for the, you know thanksgiving and 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 this and the the holiday season at the end of the year but i just want can you explain i mean one of the things that stuck to me in this is when you said expectations can be a breeding ground for resentments and how you deal with that um could you explain that oh man better than the notes i've taken here uh okay i hope i can do it justice it's been a while since i wrote that book but <laughs> This is something you'll hear in recovery meetings all the time, and it's so helpful, is that an expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. And uh, a lot of our discomfort comes from resentments. In fact, in the 12 steps, exploring resentments is part of one of the steps and then exploring your role in it. And I always thought that having high expectations was a good thing. I expect a lot of myself. I expect a lot of others. And we together get a lot done. 
But the problem is uh, that you can um, be very frustrated all the time if you are expecting a lot of anything, right? So being careful about what your expectations are sets off, um, sort of forestalls feeling resentment towards others. And mm. when it comes to any kind of holiday or special day, you, you know, a wedding or a family reunion or something like that, we tend to have ideas of how this is going to go. So um, if we're thinking about Canada Day, July 1st, or Independence Day in the US, we know there's gonna be fireworks and there's gonna be backyard barbecues and there's gonna be you know, lots of activity and lots of things. So we already in our mind have all of these images and they're fueled by social media and they're fueled by the advertising industry of how it's going to go. And one thing that we know is it's supposed to be fun right? It's supposed to be fun. And there's this um, prescription for what that fun is going to look like, like tailgating parties and, um, you know, champagne popping or whatever the alcogenic expectations are around that. So for someone who's about to have their first big event uh, sober, they might be thinking, I can't even go. This isn't going to be any fun. It's all about drinking and I'm not a drinker now. So how do I do that? know so i think that that's part of it is to really look at what we're either dreading or preparing and saying do i have expectations around this do i have expectations of myself do i have expectations of others because maybe all i need to say is i'm going to show up and i'm going to have a plan to leave and i'm not going to drink those are my expectations you know this mm. thing's going to happen i'm going to participate in a level that i'm comfortable and safe with and mm -hmm. if it's and if it's not okay for me, I can leave. And yeah. if I can't leave, I have a backup plan. I have maybe somebody on speed dial that can help me out. I have some drinks in my backpack that I like, you know, like um, for me, it's diet tonic. Weirdest thing that I'm loving these days. But, you know, you have to meet, uh, you have to prepare yourself so that you're not constantly let down. And you do that by showing up prepared for any eventuality, but also examining and releasing expectations. How did I do? Is that what you were looking for? Or was there something yeah, you know else I didn't want to say? Explain your book to you. So I wanted you to, because the rest of that book is just you, everything that you mentioned, that step-to-step -step guide of have a plan, have an exit plan, be your own designated driver. And your bit about the invitation where you said, if you don't want to go, just say, thanks, but I don't want to go. And the way you say, you know, frame it, like, oh, thank you know, and they say, oh, it won't be the same without you. You said, well, say that's kind of you, but I'm sure you'll have fun without me. Mm. And it's it's just great advice for someone who's scared about if I go to this party, I'm going to drink or use or something, and then my my three weeks of hard work are going down the swanee. Yeah, and yeah. it's well, it's just your survival guide of how to deal with it. I think it's incredibly well laid out. So it's a good read. Thank I strongly you. suggest people who are trying to struggle with an addiction, get hold of both of these books. Yeah, and the poetry too. Jean, we've kept you longer than we promised you we would, but the conversation oh has been so, so Thank lovely. you for giving us an hour of your time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's Thank my pleasure. We'd, we would love to have you back on again, because I feel like there's a million other things we could talk about. I have um, more notes. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep Dr. Mary's notes and invite you back. 
But uh, enjoy your summer. Happy almost Canada Day. Yes, happy Canada Day. Yes. And we'll talk to you soon, I hope. Everyone else, we will see you next Fantastic week. Fantastic to meet you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L.com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.